This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. We are continuing with a special edition of our podcast entitled The Future of the Joint Force, which focuses on innovations within the U.S. Department of Defense. Today, we have a panel of two guests from Joint Special Operations Command and U.S. Army Futures Command. Our first panelist is Captain James Long. He's an innovation officer at the Joint Special Operations Command. Jay also serves as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. Prior to his current assignment, Jay served on the DMZ in Korea with the United Nations Command supporting demilitarization and demining operations. He studied international relations at the United States Military Academy and innovation and entrepreneurship at Stanford Graduate School of Business's Ignite program. Our second panelist is Lieutenant Richard Kuzma. He's a data scientist and technical program manager at the Army Artificial Intelligence Task Force, where he applies machine learning to Army's problems and helps the Army build its digital workforce. Richard is an alum of the Defense Innovation Unit and the Harvard Kennedy School, where he wrote a thesis on structural changes needed to facilitate air adoption within the Department of Defense. Jay and Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So uh, let's start with your backgrounds. Uh, Tell us about your journey that got you into the current business of innovation. Absolutely. Again, thanks for having us today. I was lucky enough to stumble into the military innovation space after a summer at Stanford Business School, where uh, the Defense Innovation Board held their quarterly meeting at the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. And what was unique about that meeting was Enrique Odi, who was one of the co-founders of Castle Run, presented on the first application. And that, as a, a young infantry officer, was the first time I'd seen that while innovation is certainly hard in the military, it's also possible. And so after watching the Air Force and their software development programs launch, I was lucky enough to get to contribute to the Defense Innovation Board and AppWorks efforts that then evolved into a project we did at 375 Ranger Regiment, which is intended on taking user-level feedback distilling those into actionable problem statements that guided rapid prototyping and then delivery. Uh, and we learned pretty quickly that there's no shortage of innovators within the Department of Defense. There's at times potentially a lack of coordination between efforts, uh, but it's certainly something to be overcome. And that led to, to serving this current capacity where I'm lucky enough to contribute to the Joint Special Operations Command now, focused on digital transformation efforts and expanding that collaboration and coordination between the national security innovation ecosystem. Richard? Thanks again for having me here as well. Really excited to chat. Uh, my interest through the innovation community really started with uh, autonomy. I was lucky enough to join the Navy's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Unmanned Systems uh, back in 2016 to work on the Navy's Unmanned Systems Roadmap and really start thinking through at a high level how the Navy was going to change uh, and deal with innovation. And from there, I worked at Defense Innovation Unit, working in their machine learning portfolio, helping build some large data sets, doing data control, quality curation, and really understanding uh, some of the, the less cool but very important infrastructural components that come with innovation and doing data science and machine learning within the department. 
also got the opportunity later when I transitioned to the West Coast of the Navy to do a project um, really to help sailors better match to jobs working in the HR space uh, and really got to see there the ability of data science or innovation to, to scale and help a lot of people within the military. And it wasn't just one-off projects and really realized the potential for enterprise level change. Um, and now I'm lucky to be a part of that enterprise level change at the Army Artificial Intelligence Task Force here in Pittsburgh, where I continue to work on applying data science uh, to talent management problems, getting the right people in the right places. Talent management is uh, becoming an important topic. Uh, very recently, the Under Secretary of Defense, uh, Donovan, uh, also mentioned that that's uh, top of his agenda. And both of you also recently wrote a very important article on talent talent management thinking about how uh, to manage technologies, especially folks working on AI and emerging technologies. Can you, uh, for our audience's benefit, give us a summary of that article? Sure. So we make the argument that there are no more tech and non-tech organizations anymore. Uh, as Brian Kroger at Kessel Run said, he wants the Air Force to become an or a software organization that delivers air power. And really, for all the service delivery DOD does, it's going to need software and digital competencies. Luckily, we're in a position where DOD leaders really support that. We've started to see uh, many new education programs and kind of these uh, small beachheads where innovation units like the AI Task Force, the Software Factory, and others exist. Um, but what Jay, Jay and I and Jim Perkins, our co-author, recognized was that while we can manage this talent uh, at the small unit level now, uh, when we have the thousands of developers and technologists that we're going to need for the enterprise level change that the senior leaders and really everyone sees coming, we're going to need more of a structure and a framework to just put those people uh, against the right technical problems by default rather than uh, as one on special cases. Jay, you want to add something to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think as we explored that idea further, we identified two primary barriers and obstacles at the essentially the philosophical level. The first is going to have to be a pivot in the way that we understand military force. Historically, the military, especially the army, has been focused on industrial era outputs and scale. Size has been a good thing, and troop numbers are one of our primary proxies for first force strength. Increasingly, we're entering a world where that's less accurate. Uh, especially in the digital space, you know, bytes scale faster than bullets. The number of developers you have isn't necessarily correlated to the quality of the code that they produce. And so we're going to need to take a hard look at how do we give the right leaders the time and space they need to cultivate the aptitudes that are going to be so critical for the future of the force. Uh, and the second piece we've kind of observed is that we're entering a lot of uncertainty. You know, historically, military talent management was solving known problems. How do you create an infantryman? You know, we've got hundreds of years of experience doing that. What do we even need to man the formations of 2030? We're not sure. And so where historically you could rely on doctrine to inform education, now we're entering a period where it's going to be rapid experimentation and with at risk, that's going to have to inform how we go ahead. Uh, and I think that's going to be hard for a talent management structure that historically tried to optimize for a centrally controlled system. So it implies simplicity. Uh, and scale and scope. And now it's going to have to empower individual risk-taking and decentralized efforts. Uh, first at the organizational level, like the AI uh, task force out of Carnegie Mellon, but then later at a much broader level as a number of personal involved changes. And it'll be really important and interesting to watch how defense leaders balance those those new values and philosophical differences. So uh, how do you 
in this context, integrate uh, technology with processes that already exist? Because there are many barriers to entry uh, when it comes to bringing in fresh talent, uh, especially contract talent, right, into the DOD. Uh, It's not as easy as Google or Facebook trying to go to a recruiter and say, you know, find me a machine learning engineer. Uh, so, So how do you overcome the existing red tape that exists within the DOD. Jay, do you want to jump in on this? I feel like JSOC's done some great work here lately. Yeah, absolutely. So your, your points are definitely true. Uh, the way that we've historically understood recruitment is going to have to change. I think one of the first challenges we need to solve is clearly communicating the opportunity to serve as a technologist within the Department of Defense. And I think one of the big steps we saw successfully towards that, and this is several years ago, was the formation of the Defense Innovation Board chaired by Eric Schmidt. And so that was the first initial outreach at the institutional level to partner with Silicon Valley. And what we're going to have to continue to do is message underneath that at the individual level that if you are a machine learning expert, not only are there opportunities to support critical national security challenges, but here's where you go. And I think historically, a lot of these teams are used to talent being brought to them the Army is really good about sending you a soldier. It's not inherently designed to go out and recruit them as needed. And so there's some shifts in philosophy we're going to have to do, and part of that's more effective messaging to the broader ecosystem. That said, we've started to do that. Uh, and I think, again, like many parts of this process, we're in the early phases of prototyping what it looks like to maintain those connective tissues. But efforts like that, what Richard's doing, which is engaged in academia, is a great way to do that. Uh, and then we just finished a, a round of recruiting for developers and data scientists intended to help build out our own teams internally. And Rich would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think Jay makes an incredible point about making sure we vocalize and show off that there are entry points into the DOD from uh, what would be non-traditional uh, recruiting pipelines. Right? We have West Point and the Naval Academy and the, the Service Academies as a whole. Those are known recruiting points. But we also need to reach out, like you said, to industry, to academia, other places. Um, and until we're able to build those pipelines up, we also have to rely on developing our own people, putting them into grad programs, putting them through boot camps. Um, and whether you come from a boot camp or we're trying to entice you with the uh, the tough national security problems that we have, we need to make sure that we're queuing up the right problems and giving uh, technical leaders the right tools to address these problems because I think there are a lot of them within the military that are, you know, unknown to many folks, but really matter um, and can give folks the chance to make a difference. Richard, uh, given your current position in the Army's AI task force, what are some of the things that the Army is doing that you find exciting? Yes, so we currently uh, attack a few key thrust areas. So one of them is talent management. Another is intelligence support to operations. We work on predictive maintenance and automated threat recognition as well. Um, And we pursue those through partnerships with industry and academia. We have an artificial intelligence hub that uh, takes Army problems and blasts them out to industry and academia so we can get the best proposals and really put some of the best minds on that and then work hand in hand with those partners, um, you know, either from Carnegie Mellon or the universities or wherever those solutions come from. At the same time, uh, we're looking forward as some of the technical advisors to senior leaders trying to spot what those next problems are, um, where the technology is going, and also how do we build up our workforce, right? We talked about who 
what types of skills we need to recruit for, you know, the ways we can go about that. So we've done a lot of partnering with the Talent Management Task Force within the Army, within the, the Army's HR enterprise uh, to be able to address some of those questions. And Jay, uh, in, in the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, given your role there, what kind of AI initiatives are you seeing there? Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the best summaries of the key AI initiatives and, and AI and machine learning initiatives that have happened over the last 10 years was recently captured by General Clark, who's the current SOCOM commander, in an article he put out in the Modern War Institute. And he outlined how during the war in Iraq, we saw a shift where the amount of information being collected, either through uh, IoT sensors or through full motion video, exceeded that which we could process. And so what initially began as a challenge, which was making use of all this intelligence and all this information, has since evolved into a lot of fundamental questions about what is the nature of special operations in the future. Where once we were trying to correct a deficiency, which is sorting through data, now you have the opportunity to challenge what does it look like to fundamentally deliver national security in the 21st century. And as we increasingly integrate cloud technologies, big data AI, and other infrastructural tools into daily operations, we're seeing a shift in a lot of the ways that we understand what it means to support our international partners and, and key national security objectives. And so it's really exciting to watch that shift in thinking occur from the micro to the macro levels. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Expertify differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Expertify Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expertify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. So as you see that uh, the Army is integrating AI into its environment, how is it thinking about skilling, upskilling, reskilling uh, its personnel so that they can actually manage those AI systems? The Army's been really thinking about that in a big way, and we're at a fortunate place where a lot of the senior leaders are very supportive of these initiatives. So just within the Army Futures Command, we have the AI Scholars Program, which is at Carnegie Mellon, it's a two-year master's for either a data science or a data engineering-focused degree. Um, and then adjacent to that, we have a cloud technician program where we're, it's a, a little bit shorter in duration, get people in, get them trained up, get them out working on problems. Uh, so I see both of these types of programs uh, scaling very much in the future, um, not only from our first partnership with Carnegie Mellon, potentially to other universities. And we want to make sure that at the same time, we're building the right uh, infrastructure, the right platforms, and putting the right tools in the hands of all of these uh, soldiers that come through these programs so they can start working on tough projects and tough problems um, and continue to build that skill set. And I think as we augment this with the Army's Advanced Civil Schooling Program and the existing degree opportunities, I think the future is looking very bright for educating and developing the force. If, if you are in the Army and you, you have an aspiration to join a program such as this one, uh, the one at Carnegie Mellon, uh, for example, uh, are there certain requirements you have to meet? 
There are definitely a, a certain you know, technical requirements. You're getting a top tier degree um, at an exceptionally good university. So we definitely take care in sending people we think will be successful to that. Um, but we share this opportunity very widely because we know not everyone comes from a typical computer science background. You could have built up these skills on your own. Um, we, Jay and I, have friends who have worked in industry before. So really, we open this up, the aperture up as much as possible um, to find all that talent wherever it is. And at the, the same time, we're working on uh, building decision aids within the Army's talent management system that's going to be able to kind of scope uh, and find this talent, these different skill sets like cloud, big data, AI within the force so it's easier to find these people and we don't miss them uh, so we can ensure that they're getting these opportunities to continue developing their skills. And, and, and Jay, are you seeing uh, similar opportunities available uh, where you are? Absolutely. And, and one thing I was going to add too is uniquely, I think, in the military's recent past, technology is a sector you can opt into. So whereas a lot of career trajectories essentially start from the moment you enter a uniform service, right now, because demand so far outpaces supply, there's an opportunity for people to, to upskill and to educate themselves and then become competitive for these roles. And at a very tangible example where I've seen that is places like the Army Software Factory out of Austin, who essentially has done like a call across the Army for the next couple of rounds of candidates to come into the program. Likewise, and, and Richard, please correct me, programs like the AI Technician are taking talent from around the force. And so there's this golden opportunity, I think, for a lot of young leaders to raise their hand and upskill themselves enough that they can then contribute. And as they build these skills, they're now on the ground floor of the force figuring out what it looks like as this digital transformation gains momentum. Uh, and because there aren't the standard credentialing pathways that exist for other forms of expertise, this really is contingent on, on how hard you're willing to work and how much you're willing to pursue some of these opportunities. And the force actually needs leaders to stand up and opt in because there's no point, I think, where a central system can exceed the creativity and the output of a self-organizing system. And I think Silicon Valley's taught us that. To add on to what Jay has said, the uh, Joint AI Center, so a really a large joint office, is also piloting its own workforce development programs. I know they're working with acquisition professionals and really all parts of the DOD contracting and acquisition apparatus, but not just the engineering side. And there are a lot of good efforts as well to educate senior leaders who may be more advanced in their careers, may not be hands-on keyboard, um, but can really understand the value that software and data can bring to their organizations, the one that you know, can really move those levers of change. So it's good to see that we're educating the most technical folks, as well as you know the most senior leaders who need you know, some understanding, but not the, quite the same level of tech. That's wonderful. So as you know that uh, academia is really at the cutting edge when it comes to uh, thinking about AI and uh, proposing new algorithms, uh, some of the most advanced uh, knowledges being produced out of uh, uh, academia. So how is uh, the DOD uh, partnering with academic institutions? I mean, you gave a great example of how you can be upskilled by going to a university, but what about research? I think a lot of that has been uh, DOD institutions going to where academia is, right? If you look at the main, some of the big hubs, not to say these are all of them, but Austin, the Bay Area, uh, Boston, and Pittsburgh are definitely four major ones. And you see the Defense Innovation Unit has a uh, foothold in Silicon Valley, as well as Boston, I know AFWorks, and then uh, the Air Force has set up partnerships with MIT, the AI Task Force is here in Pittsburgh, the Futures Command is down in Austin, Texas. 
of all of the traditional ways that DOD has always reached out to industry, we also want to have more of these collision events and, and more informal idea uh, gathering and idea generation and going to where uh, that knowledge and that, that talent. Great. So I want to uh, take a moment to invite my colleague Adam Wood to come join us. Richard, as a follow-up to uh, question nine, uh, specifically with partnering, could you talk a little bit about what those interactions look like, how you've supported them in the past, um, talk about a little bit of what the process is and what you're asking for those uh, from those partners? The AI Task Force works through... Um, an intermediary called the Artificial Intelligence Hub to work with a lot of industry partners. So we'll generate problems from the Army, make sure we have all the, the funding and contracting available, and then we go out and seek solutions from industry, and we, or excuse me, academia as well, um, and say, hey, what, where is the edge of the field? Uh, and we'll receive proposals back, and we can do technical evaluations of those. Uh, we also have a key role in going to conferences, just staying up to date, uh, where you also get a lot of those interactions. Uh, we also rely on the connections of some of the uh, officers on our team who maybe just recently completed graduate degrees and you know have a really deep understanding of where the research is at and connections to professors to continually ask and understand uh, you know what is the state of the possible there. Yeah, fantastic. And, and Jay, could you speak a little bit uh, about your experience with the uh, Defense Innovation Board? Uh, maybe some of the experiences that you've had with uh, JSOC and JSOC-X? Yeah, absolutely. So the Defense Innovation Board has got a pretty critical role in starting a lot of the narratives. And in fact, it's just a personal side, both Richard and myself were mentioned as part of the case studies uh, in unique talent management adventures that happen when you don't have some of these systems established. Uh, but the Defense Innovation Board's value proposition, I think, especially at senior levels, was informing the strategic direction of policy. I think a lot of the defense leaders that we've grown up with are exceptional at what they do, but being asked to reimagine the future is pretty hard. And so we're, I think that the Silicon Valley community came together with supporting a lot of the decision-making made by Secretary of Defense uh, through key leaders like Eric Schmidt, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and others, who helped him understand what it looks like to adapt the organization to those requirements. And what that helped do is set in the background the legislative freedoms necessary to then have some of these smaller experiments. And so they were essentially the macro top cover and enabling resources you needed for these tactical level efforts on the, the, the ground floor to, to iterate through an experiment. And so it's, it's beautiful to see both the top down and bottom up influence come together to resolve things like Agile being adopted as a norm, uh, talent management reform gaining momentum and a litany of other changes that they helped. Yeah, we, we had a look at the public hearing uh, on Tuesday and uh, took a look at the transcript after the fact. So the lead staffer on that paper for basically the disassembling and clearance of new talent management uh, processes, uh, worker classification, remote workers, um, it's a huge innovation um, and a very progressive step forward. Um, so... You know, that's it's it's wonderful experience. Following up on that, um, given your position within JSOC, I'm sure that the viewers would enjoy hearing your thoughts on how the broader global AI landscape has, is and will continue to influence special ops um, and what special ops is doing in the AI space. Um, basically, what are some of the tools that that may be utilized to scale the, the use of AI across special ops? So you, you talk about Army's software factory. Could you name a couple of others? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think your question drives at the fact that while we are all paying attention to AI and algorithm development, behind the scenes is a lot of work on building the piping and infrastructure necessary. And so what, what is happening at the macro level is a shift towards expecting AI-enabled capabilities and understanding that there's deep infrastructure work you have to do to get there. And so building an AI literate force is instead contingent on having infrastructure like cloud uh, and data-driven decision-making as an underpinning. In terms of what's already been done, and as I alluded to earlier, General Clark's article, the requirements to sit, filter, and understand data coming out of uh, the war in Iraq has led to fundamental shifts in the way that the special operations community processes everything from mission planning to mission reporting. And the team I'm on right now at JSOC exists uh, to make information accessible, usable, and insightful. And so we're still understanding what it looks like at scale, but already we've started embedding and leveraging data science and DevOps at the edge with small teams that are able to go in and generate insights and inform commanders at the speed of need, which is really helpful to change. And then behind the scenes, you've got reachback infrastructure that enables sustainable growth over time. Absolutely. As you said, there's a, an understanding that we'll have to use AI models and inference and decision aids. And now we're starting to look deeper down the tech stack, right? Looking at our cloud compute, how we're storing data, how we're labeling data, what are the pipelines and the data engineering uh, that work that we need to do to ensure the infrastructure is there. And to make sure we can scale AI throughout the Army, throughout the DOD, it's going to come down to those platforms, right? AFC has um, its own, the Air Force is building platform one, uh, at the AI Task Force, we're building COES, which is a, a kind of data science workbench. I know that Jake has their own efforts. And these are the tools, the centralized tools that the decentralized problem solvers at the edge of the formation are going to be able to use to solve problems, you know, far from the Pentagon where we need answers the most. Do you think any of those groups would benefit from having a codified uh, standard, a uniform standard of requirements so that it's not piecemealed from one service to the other to, to get, bring everybody, you know, so the data is not siloed so much. There's more information sharing, uh, more tech transfer, um, because it seems to me that that would be an efficient way to scale. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of good work going on behind the scenes that may be published more in the future about how much sharing is being done, um, about creating those technical standards that you mentioned that everyone's looking to do. I know our team at the AI Task Force has been in close contact with AFC, with uh, the Jake and with the Air Force, who have been really leaders in the space. But you're, you're right on the money there that I think there will be a lot of standardization uh, to make that happen. So, Richard, uh, in, in the recent times, we've seen growing collaboration across the DOD. Can you talk about some of the communities that have popped up uh, in, in the context of COVID-19 and also more broadly when it comes to innovation? I think there's a misperception within DOD that all this innovation is being siloed either within organizations or the services. Um, and there are so many different Interlinks. A uh, big one has been the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, which Jay and I are both a big part of. That's a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, I think he can also talk a little bit more to some of the COVID stuff, but we recently both participated in a Army DevSecOps Day uh, for uh, focus on development operations and best software practices. And we had people calling in from all over the world, multiple time zones, being able to tell their stories, collaborate, share lessons learned. Uh, so I think, you know, as a lot of the 
initiatives that we've talked about are happening at very high levels within the Pentagon. There also is a strong grassroots movement pushing these forward, sharing information, uh, sharing wins and telling those stories. And I think Jay can tell one of those success stories with COVID. Yeah, thank you. One of the things I'd like to highlight that Richard said is that for us to succeed, we have to recognize that this is an ecosystem we're building and not individual teams or capabilities, right? When, when people talk digital transformation, it's people, processes, and the last thing is technology. I think we have a tendency to zoom in on that because it's the easiest to understand. But what we've consistently seen and been grateful to see is the degree of collaboration both across the Army and across the services and across government that enables this. I mean, if you want to talk agile transformation within the context of embracing a different cultural perspective, organizations like Naval Action, and you guys have the secretary on, has the Center for Adaptive Warfighting. Well, the call not only trains scrum masters, but trains it for all services. Like if you have a CAC card, you're welcome aboard. Likewise, there's Air Force boot camps and online like coding repositories and opportunities to learn that are open. And so I, I challenge any assumptions that it's one team fighting for themselves and more behind the scenes where I think we've seen the most consistent success is when people come together from a diverse group with diverse resources and strengths and value propositions to offer to accelerate the growth of any of these other teams. Because in order to win, this needs to be sustainable. And for this to be sustainable, you need to have talent development pipelines that are not possible if you're only looking at your own small slice of the pie. And something that had come up earlier is in reference to COVID-19 response, we watched the benefits of that very flat and interconnected ecosystem react immediately after COVID-19 became a national issue. And before, I think, we had the degree of cogence that we have now around how the different federal organizations are working together. And leaders like JJ Snow from AppWorks were able to leverage the networks they'd already built up in the innovation space to reach out effectively and rapidly to partners on the East Coast and elsewhere to synchronize and learn fast and therefore inform policy. And I think the big takeaway from that is there's an opportunity to contribute now that's not bound by where you're currently assigned, assuming you're willing to, to get involved and assume some personal risk and just tackle the problem. So maybe that's upskilling, maybe that's outreach, maybe that's joining something like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, maybe it's contributing through writing like we recently did. There's no shortage of ways to contribute. And we all need everyone to step forward because this is a, a network good. The more people contributing, the more opportunities we can capitalize on, the more the entire defense ecosystem benefits. Uh, and so there's no shortage of ways to get involved. And that's something I think we're really grateful for. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been an enlightening conversation. Uh, and I wish you both the very best. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, really mm -hmm. look forward to uh, partnering together, building this ecosystem. Happy to help. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.